Hello, and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop, and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm joined by Courtney Kistler, Chief Technology Officer at online retailer Zulily. Prior to joining Zulily in January 2021, Courtney served a wide range of roles across many global brands, including VP of Technology at Nike, VP of Retail Technology at Starbucks, and VP of Digital Store Technologies at Nordstrom, where she drove a technological transformation essential for outpacing the demands of today's omnichannel consumers. Courtney's passion for learning and for sharing her experiences with our community is just amazing. She covered some key topics, such as generative cultures, thinking the wrong ways around tech debt, thinking the right ways about OKRs, and connecting the pursuit of technological outcomes to things that matter to the customer. With that, let's get started. Hello, everyone. I am here with Courtney Kistler today. And Courtney, I think year on year, uh, we a lot of us, I know myself included, are always watching your talk. The first one for me was in DevOps Enterprise Summit 2014 when I realized, wow, this is this is the way that we should be thinking about metrics and about transformations. And, and it was actually quite different to me at that point to what I was, I was actually hearing from others. And you've had this just fascinating and amazing journey being a technology executive at Nordstrom's, at Starbucks, at, at Nike, now at actually at, at Zulily and Etailer. So can you just tell us a little bit about, for, for those of us like myself who've been watching it from the, the sidelines and having a chance to, to talk to you about all your learnings on this journey at various stages of large enterprises, at various phases of transformation, and, and now at a company that's, that's you know, so innovative and technology forward. So I guess just tell us how you, how you ended up where you are today at Zulily. All right. Uh, thanks, Mick, for inviting me to the podcast. I'm super excited to, to share and talk to you about this topic. And our, um, so I'll start with my journey. Um, you know, you mentioned 2014, which I consider to be like one of the biggest kind of, uh, I would say, uh, learning moments in my journey. So two years prior to that, I was at Nordstrom and we decided to go big on digital, which now sounds like, of course you did. But back then we really weren't. We were investing in our website twice a year. We were doing releases twice a year. We had outsourced our apps. We really didn't have a digital capability internally. And our board at the time said, we need to go big and we need to invest, which set a bunch of stuff in motion inside the organization. And was when I really started to get exposed to and connected to the DevOps community. It really started in our infrastructure organization. They were kind of trailblazing and doing infrastructure as code and really looking at providing self-service to the developers. So I spent some time like learning from them, read the Phoenix Project, which I think a lot of people would say was, you know, one of the first kind of exposures to, to DevOps, and then had that opportunity to tell our story at the DevOps Enterprise Summit in 2014. And what was amazing about that experience was getting to meet the broader enterprise community and learning about how much we all share from each other and, and you know, work together, 
use each other as sounding boards. We're all facing similar challenges and, and not surprising, a lot of them turn into culture challenges. Spent a number of years at Nordstrom focusing on value stream mapping. How do we really create a generative culture that's grounded in learning and focusing on outcomes over output and a lot of the concepts that our community cares about and made a lot of progress. We, we actually had a lot of really great momentum and took value streams across most of the technology organization and really started measuring what it took to get value from idea all the way to our customer, whether it was big C customer, little C customer, and started to be very data-driven. So that was exciting. And then I decided to move to Starbucks in executive technology role, leading the retail organization there, which is global POS. So all of the, including company operated and licensee ecosystem across the globe for Starbucks, which what a difference in kind of what you need to focus on and care about. Like at Nordstrom, it was all about you come into the store or you shop in our digital experiences. And it was about engagement, experience, really high-end customer service. At Starbucks, people are wanting speed. Like you got to be quick. And so learning how to apply some of what I had learned at Nordstrom, because a lot of the challenges that we were facing at Starbucks were similar. Like we had moved to a monthly release cadence, but that was not our cycle time or our lead time. So the team thought release cadence equaled lead time. And they had done a value stream map, but they hadn't really incorporated what I would consider to be kind of the, the system and the structure to learn from what we had documented through the value stream. So we resurfaced it and ended up finding out that even though we were releasing monthly, our lead time was 84 days. So great thing to understand, right? So it's 84 days. How do we improve and reduce it? So we started doing tiny experiments and we had like a run ahead team that would do smaller deployments and got down to 17 days. And so we started to iterate and, you know, I'm a big believer in start small and scale. So we started small, learned from that team, and then started to incorporate those learnings into the broader value stream. It's also where I started to implement other tactics that I thought were needed for us to optimize for flow of value, things like whip limits. So I, I, I'm super passionate about the work that the team is doing needs to be visible so that we can be helpful as leaders in unblocking or removing impediments to teams being able to do their best work. And so flow is a huge, you know, uh, passion of mine. So I'll start with like, let's make the work visible. What's in the way? In some cases, our teams were not getting time and space to work on, we'll call them operational health 
So they couldn't do things like instrumentation and observability because they were just delivering features. So it's like, break that work down. This is where I love your, I love your book. And I didn't have it at the time then, but it's like, how do we, how do we understand into it? So that's, that's yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. But it's like, how do you know? And you really have to start with the capacity required to keep your services healthy. And then you can layer in other work. And then most organizations encourage ideation and innovation, and they should. There's always way more ideas than there is capacity to deliver against those ideas. And so a common theme is business person, doesn't matter. The idea generation can come from anywhere. They're like, I think we should do this. What's it going to cost? technology. Tell me the estimation required for us to deliver this idea. To do that takes capacity and often takes capacity from engineers and architects and product managers and people who are currently committed to other work. So safe space for discovery, but also whip limit discovery. You were just reminding me of this client. We were we were sitting. I think it was on the, on the top floor of a building in Portland, where, where we were saying is you know the only way we can help organizations is to have them assume fixed capacity, because of course all these big ideas that come from above, they they don't have a realistic view of it, and they assume that we can just flex it as you would compute on. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but yes, but please continue. And the context matters. So we were working on this huge POS upgrade, and. We kept turning the project red and changing the timeline, which is never fun. It's not fun for the team. It's not fun for the stakeholder community. So what we ended up finding out is that we weren't being intentional about the capacity required to commit to that work. And we had some constraints in our team And certain team members were getting context switched. So they would get pulled off to work on an incident or some other discovery activity, and they would deprioritize upgrade. So what we did is we said, all right, we have fixed capacity. I love that you said that. And if we were to stack rank our priorities as an organization and put our precious capacity against the highest priorities, then What's left over? Because whatever's left over should be next up, but not in flight, which is not easy because it requires discipline. You have to be okay with appreciating that there's fixed capacity and okay with like articulating the value, like really quantifying the value and being intentional about where you put the capacity. So what we did is we took and put the capacity after Some organizations call it keep the lights on, required to operate, whatever you want to call it. That came first. Next came the POS upgrade. So all of a sudden, we were no longer context switching some of our critical team members, and we made progress. We stopped turning the project red. And it was like, this. these are concepts that most of our community talk about all the time. It's like, make your work visible limit whip, strategically prioritize, like, you know, minimize context switching, but putting it into practice can be really, really challenging. 
there's also, I talked about generative culture, like there wasn't yet the environment where team members felt safe to go, I'm not set up for success. Like I'm burdened. I have more work than I have capacity to do. Everyone wants to do a great job. So they're just going to figure out how to fit it in in some way. They're going to work extra hours. They're going to work on the weekends. They're going to try to manage it all. And I feel like my role as a leader is really to minimize burden, optimize flow, create a generative culture and like psychological safety and like make sure teams feel supported. So that was part of the journey that I I went on at Starbucks. And then I joined Nike, which was really, really exciting. I was in the digital platform organization there and Nike went through a bunch of transformation while I, while I was there. And I won't, I won't talk about all of it, but one of the things that was missing that I was able to introduce after going through kind of first 90 days and really listening to where the problems were was value stream mapping. We really didn't understand the flow of value to our customer. So we did some value stream maps across, again, started small. I think I had an 800 person organization at the time, and we took only five teams through the value stream mapping process because there's a readiness aspect too. Like the leaders have to be ready. The teams have to be ready. You got to really have a good system to sustain that kind of continuous improvement mindset. So we did it with five teams. We're able to make a ton of progress on our lead time and our quality metrics. I'm also a big believer in percent complete accurate. Like we would see that we were asking for information before we really needed it. And it was slowing down the flow of value. So did some of that at Nike, also introduced the Accelerate and State of DevOps content and metrics, but really focused on... We called it Ship 365. So we had the typical anti-pattern where we would say, during our peak windows, we are going to shut down all change. And we're going to have freeze windows and we're going to have committees to review changes. And we really wanted to shift more to what's keeping us from shipping 365 days a year at any time during the day then we can make a business decision about whether or not it's the right time to do it. But we shouldn't be scared to deploy. And what that created was a platform for teams to elevate, well, I haven't had time to do CI in the right way. I just haven't had the space. And we said, okay, well, what might it take for you to get that support? Or I don't have observability across any of the products that I'm working on. Awesome. What would it take to give you that space? So that was kind of a a good transition that we went through there. And then I decided to join Zulily. And I had talked to Zulily years before and really admired the culture there. Love the focus on technology as a real, frankly, all of the companies I've been at have focused on technology as a strategic enabler. But Zulily is a technology company. We build a lot of our technology, which was compelling to me. And it's all about creating a culture of learning, which is super important to me. 
Like I, I really thrive in an environment where learning is at the core of the DNA of the organization. So experimentation, innovation, learning, healthy balance of operational and feature delivery. So it's been it's been great. I'm on month five, so I'm still pretty new to the organization. I went through my first 90 days because I'm a big believer in that. So lots of listening, lots of taking in like what's causing burden in the teams. And not surprising, it goes right back to what you said. The fixed capacity in the organization is not well understood. So how do we make that visible? How do we make that part of our prioritization decisions? OKRs are a huge part of the system at Zulily. We were also introducing them at Nike. I forgot to say that. So we started on our OKR journey when I was there. So adopting a framework to help provide that line of sight to teams so they know that the work they're doing is contributing to something that is strategic and part of our kind of our organization's strategic plan. Sorry, lots of words. Wow. Yeah, I I have uh, so many notes. It's <laughs> I will I think I'm gonna have to rewind just a little bit because it, there's just I think so much so much wisdom there, Courtney. So I just you know, starting back to to I think what you saw and what you experienced, which is when you started talking about the self-service aspects of it, right? You actually came from network engineering and you somehow got this palpable sense that we've got all these bottlenecks in terms of how development operations communicate. And then you, you I think you know, you moved on to the fact that I think what you said is so important is that release frequency is not capacity. It's not the whole value stream. And I think so many leaders there from the, you know, a lot of people who are trying to impact change, they're, they're seeing these massive bottlenecks on the infrastructure side. They're trying to help bring their organizations to cloud. They're kind of, you know, stuck before the stage that you're at. So how did you, how did you, you know, make that transition in terms of actually making sure that your teams, the, the parts of the organizations that were, you know, within sort of your, your sphere of influence and your sphere of control that they understood that there was more to these value streams than, you know, than, than just shipping code every day and shipping code safely, but that you actually had to have the, the business understanding the dynamics of flow. Because where, where I want you to get us to, if you could, is, is back to this point of the fixed capacity, right? We're going to have to talk about OKRs on this episode. That's, that's been such a hot topic lately in the DevOps enterprise community. And I'm seeing one of these massive dysfunctions, which is the way that OKR planning is done is completely divorced from any sense of what the actual value streams are, what their capacity is, and what, what could be done. So somehow you've been, I've, and I've watched you do this over the years, is educating business leaders, they need to assume fixed capacity while you take it on yourself, of course, to increase that capacity, increase that th- th- throughput, increase that flow velocity. So, so how did you, you know, how have you had those discussions in, in your role at various VP roles at these organizations to help uh, other parts of the business understand what, what you saw with your teams and what was burning them day to day? Yeah, such a great question. Because I think the the shift in mindset at the leadership level is so critical and how organizations think about, and I don't even like to say IT, technology, because if you think about traditional IT organizations or how IT has been part of organizations, it's really been a service provider. They're kind of off to the side, maybe order takers, maybe considered a cost center. Like there's all these kind of attributes of IT. 
And the shift that that we made that I think was critical was opening up transparency to the technology challenges. Because I think a lot of leaders are like, just don't worry about it. Just tell me what you want and I'll, I'll deliver against it. But I found that my most meaningful partnerships and progress that we made was when we made things very visible. And I'll give an example. So similar to the web example that I used, when we decided to bring our mobile development back in-house, what we uncovered was, again, we were only releasing twice a year for our iPhone app, which is just not okay. And and so we did a value stream map to understand like what was contributing to the long lead times. Also, because a lot of organizations, and I think this is where you know DevOps comes in, but if you think about a lot of organizations were uh, structured where you had dev teams and you had production support or operations teams, then you have your infrastructure teams, like you had all these silos. QA was another silo. And it was like, well, this isn't how we want to be operating. Like one concept that we introduced with my business partner at Nordstrom was work is work. Because we have fixed capacity, you can't delineate and have like one backlog that's about production and one backlog that's about dev. You really need to have a single backlog. And I want my business partner to see it. Mm -hmm. So one thing I'm not a fan of, but I understand why some companies go here is when we go into planning, we're going to carve out 40% of our capacity to do tech debt. It's like, I've, I've yet to see that work. What I've seen work is this is the work that we have that needs to be done. This is the fixed capacity that we have in the team. Business partner, get in it with me. And let's make the tough decisions about what is important with the fixed capacity that we have, which includes prioritizing things like we had a high crash rate. My business partner didn't even know that because it was considered an IT KPI. IT watches crash rates. And I'm like, no, the company should care about crash rates. She cared, but it had never been made visible to her before. So it was like, make it visible. And then she said, what work is in our backlog that would reduce our crash rate? So we moved that above the line and then we lowered our crash rate. Our star rating in the Apple store was not good. She's like, what work could we do to improve our star rating? Well, these five things, move them above the line. So it took that transparency and really grounding it in the reality of the fixed capacity Work is work. All the work should be visible. And we should have a balanced mechanism for prioritizing the work. It shouldn't just be, is that going to drive revenue? It should also include how are we going to have, and I mean, you could argue lower crash rates equates to potentially higher revenue because people can complete their purchase. But, but that was not part of the prioritization framework until she and I kind of started to make it visible. It made people uncomfortable because to that point, we hadn't been as 
open to kind of what was going on behind the scenes and technology, but I think it's important. And I think the lines are blurring. One of my passions, and you you know this about me, is a lot of the work that we're driving as passionate change agents for transformation and DevOps, we can't do alone. It's not a technology transformation. It is a company transformation. And if your business partners and leaders aren't on board, you'll make limited progress. And so how to open that up and really make it visible and data-driven so that you can make better decisions. And then the teams felt supported. So we're like, we're going to get time to work on these things that have been on our backlog for the last 12 months. Yes. And we have alignment and it's important and we're going to report on it. We're going to make it visible so people see that these are outcomes that we are going to improve, which at the time we were not calling OKRs, but they really were. They were things that we were trying to improve. Yeah. And I think the, so let's just dive into that, that tech, that topic. Cause I think where I see a lot of teams fail is they, you know, they realize they've got these, you know, let's say, let's, let's go back to the crash problem is that they've taken all these shortcuts to try to get that initial iOS app or some other app to market. And there, there are piles of tech debt. But when they make the case to the, you know, to, to the business partner, to the to, to people on the product side, the people working closely with customers, uh, that they need to spend all this time on on tech debt, it's it's not a case that that's in a language or that makes sense. It's not outcome based, right? It's, we just need to work on tech debt. We just need to fix the architecture. So the approach that I know is, and this of course the, the whole approach of the flow framework is that everything, every every single investment that you're making in your value streams actually drives some kind of business outcome. So I think that's, you know, lower crash rate is a, is a perfect example. If you can now make the case for lowering the crash rate through, you know, fixing some of these major problems or taking on some SDKs you shouldn't have touched at that point or some APIs you shouldn't be using and actually make the case with lowering the crash rate with a tech debt investment, again, you're making an economic case just the same way as, you know, you know, you need to probably accelerate the the velocity of some cool features to get the star rating up. And again, it's it's about making that case for investing in some kind of flow, whether it be you know features or or debt reduction. Uh, but but making the econ- economic case. So is it how and how are you doing this? Are you doing it yourself? Are you are you empowering your teams to again to to make a case that's outcome based for? And I do actually want to, there's an interesting nuance here that where I see people struggle with you before you said big C customer versus little C customer, right? Sometimes these investments are even, even less directly relevant to the iOS app store because you need to invest in some, uh, you know, customer data or, or pipeline uh, yeah. in support of that. So how do you help your teams make that case where, again, I think we, we all know what we want to do is we, we want to create a better experience for the customer, for the business. And, and so often what happens, yeah, is, is people will bring as part of planning this, we need to spend 40% of the next 12 months on technical debt. And of course that, that falls on deaf ears. Yeah, I think it, it, it does. And often the reality during your kind of, once you've, you know, done your planning process, if you validate at the end, I would, say strongly that I could guess it never equated to 40% anyway. Right. So um, it often gets deprioritized, even if you try that. So one thing that I've been trying to do, and it's funny, I literally just had this conversation this morning. I don't even want to call it tech debt. I think tech debt is overplayed. I think it lends itself to this immediate 
Like that's a technology problem. And someone that I worked with at Nike, he's actually part of our forum community, said, the second you ship to production, it's tech debt. Like the day you deploy. <laughs> because you are you basically have just, you know, you should be investing in your underlying technology components always. So you don't end up in a scenario where you've got this huge backlog of things that require, you know, I, I used to, I've heard it called different things at different companies. Like one is modernization. Let's do a modernization initiative and we'll fund it. And then we'll do a bunch of modernization. And it's like, okay, or you could connect it to a business outcome because often, and I'll give an example, one area that I've seen that often gets underinvested in, but is critical to the experience for your customer is supply chain. It's like, oh, it's that's back of the house supply chain. Some retailers have recognized supply chain is critical, but not all. And often it hasn't been a focus for investment. But if you can take it and say, if we build a supply chain platform that can enable experiences that our customer cares about. So one thing that I think all customers care about is set my expectations on when my order is going to arrive and then manage my expectations accordingly. So make your promise, keep your promise, or tell me if you need to adjust the promise. Feels like basics, but there's a whole supply chain ecosystem that informs that promise that if it's not being invested in, it's going to break down for the customer. So connecting that, and again, this goes back to value stream. It's like, if you consider what does it take for us as an organization to commit to our customer an accuracy of when to expect their order, you will see really quickly where you might have, and you could still call it tech debt, where you require investment to improve that business. I mean, I consider that to be a business outcome because where it shows up is NPS or, I mean, you can see it show up in someone may cancel their order because you haven't done it well. So you can connect it to something that matters, but you, you need to, because if you just say, like, say there's a constraint in the supply chain technology, like we do batching of, re, of our inventory availability. So once a day, we can tell the customer what's really available. Well, it's probably going to lend itself to a less than accurate promise to your customer. Well, maybe that's because you haven't architected it in a way to do real time. Some may call that tech debt. I would call it tech investment and enablement of accuracy to your customer and expectation management and keeping your commitment. I don't know if that is an example, but I feel like that's where things break down a little bit. And you can really even take that all the way to if you still have infrastructure investments required. So maybe you haven't moved everything to the cloud yet, and that becomes an enabler. But it's seen as like, if, if you have things on-prem, it's tech debt. It's like, well, maybe not. 
maybe the reason that you have it on-prem is a different driver, but moving it to the cloud is going to unlock a business outcome. I really like how you're always looking at better ways to connect it to something that matters, to the business, to the customer, right? Because I think the again, where where people get so frustrated with these these arguments falling on deaf ears, it's I do see a similar pattern to what you're seeing, right? Which is that investing in the, the core platforms, investing in better supply chain management and software and all of those things, they're you know one or two steps divorced from some of the key results or KPIs that we might be tracking at the business level because they require additional investment before they actually drive up NPS. So the way, and tell me what you think of this, the, the way that I've been having, I think, at least a little bit of success in, in helping some uh, technology and business leaders understand this is, is to actually to understand what are the leading indicators of success and in terms of those outcomes and then how to track those and then, of course, how to keep tracking it until you're actually getting to that outcome. Because, of course, technical debt investment and you know the flow framework elevates the concept of debt, not, not just technical debt, but actual debt in, in process and in organizational structures and the way that you know we've got you know, we basically have these disconnected silos. That's just, these are all various forms of debt between our software architecture, our organizational structure, and, and the processes that we have in place. But technical debt investment is never visible to a customer. A customer should never care, right? All they care about is how often the app crashed and whether they had a great experience. And fundamentally, we care about how they rated it and how it drove those, those business outcomes. So I love how you're always, again, relating these, the, all of the technology investment. And I think... Again, they, it's, a, it's such a key part of your thinking is that it's a continuous investment. We don't have a tech debt release, right? But we, I, I know what we do at TaskTop, of course, is every single release has some portion of debt reduction. And that debt reduction is just investment in improving technology to improve flow for the next release cycle. And that's it. And if it didn't improve flow in the next release cycle, well, we did something wrong. And maybe, you know, maybe that refactoring was not as, or that API was not as useful as we envisioned. So... Again, you're tell me because I think you know you and I both are starting to do the same thing. We, what we want to do is provide these leading indicators that will actually, f- first of all, have that hypothesis of how we can drive those outcomes, something that's meaningful to the customer and to the to the company. How are and of course, I think you and I are both trying to make OKRs be some of that, right? Be that bridge between the business strategy, the plan, the the business outcomes. And then what we need to do within technology to deliver on those, where it's not these big bangs. It's more this this continuous learning and improvement and experimentation. So how have you been, and of course, then I just want to really quickly relate the fact that I often see OKRs as just completely misused, basically driving even more work in progress uh, on teams by escalating additional features and additional ma- major initiatives around cloud and the rest, and actually not giving any of that room for learning and improvement and, uh, and what you know, the space for a generative culture. So how are you not messing up the OKR stuff? <laughs> um, well, uh, I do. I definitely do not have it all figured out. I can share the things that I think are super important when it comes to practicing and adopting OKRs. One is, and, and you said this, you have to have a structure and a system to really learn and And you said, you know, look at those leading indicators and make any adjustments required. I think a lot of companies will set up, and I, you know, use my air quotes, OKRs, and then they have no system. Sometimes I call it system of accountability, not always popular, but just how are you inspecting 
and understanding that the work you're doing is really improving that OKR in the right way? And if not, what's your mechanism for adjusting what you're working on so that it does improve the OKR? So I think that's one, like absent the system, I feel like OKRs are meaningless. I also have seen, even though this is, you know, out there in the industry, you can't have 50 of them. Yeah. You have to keep, you know, I think it's what the five and three, or there's a bunch of guidance, but it's like, you know, don't, don't have too many. Um, And that's not to say, because one thing I've learned when I'm introducing OKRs to a team is, um, well, we can't just care about those five things. And it's like, no, that's not what OKRs are intended for. We will still have KPIs. Right. Like we have to have those indicators that we're looking at in a balanced view. OKRs, it's not, it's not an or, it's an and, but being very intentional about the use of those. And then also it takes discipline, which I think sometimes organizations equate discipline to bureaucracy or administrative overhead versus some amount of discipline enables agility. It really sets you up to be able to move at the pace that you need to move at and make sure that you have confidence that your teams have line of sight to what they're delivering and you have your capacity lined up to the things that matter. I think the structure matters a lot, the system. What we're using at Zulily, which I I think is great, we have a weekly business review where we're looking at those leading indicators and we're we're making decisions about what we might need to do differently. Not in a, I think you can end up in a scenario where you're whiplashing the organization. Mm -hmm. So it's like, learn from the leading indicators, but be thoughtful about adjusting the OKR plan because we don't want to just continue to context switch and move move people at working on things that you got to give it some time is what I'm trying to say. And then uh, having that feedback loop where it's like, yes, we intended this to reduce the crash rate. We need to learn for the next four to six weeks whether or not it did. So give the time and space, have the structure to look at the data. Leaders need to be engaged because one thing I found is that leaders will get excited about OKRs and then they'll delegate it into the organization versus really being, you know, checking in enough to signal that it's important and providing support if the team needs to make a tough trade-off or or a decision that we need to work on something different. So I think that's all important. I still think it's hard to see when you have an OKR that might require multiple teams to contribute to it, which is, I think, a valid use case in most organizations. How are you really understanding like what is contributing to the improvement or not of that OKR in an environment where you might have more than one team doing work that's intended to improve it. 
So one thing that we're going to introduce that we haven't had, because we have teams reporting on OKRs in what we call our communities. So we have community monthly business reviews. We don't have a cross community OKR conversation. So we're going to introduce that into the system so that we can have a more meaningful conversation across kind of teams. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's some of what I've seen. It does. I think it's really helpful in just triangulating with the rest of what you've said, right? Is that the, these key results like reducing crash, right? So it's the failure mode I see, by the way, much as, again, we all love investing in technology and reducing technical debt. It's... It, when I've seen that said as a as an OKR, it's it, it's I find it a bit disturbing because again you're sort of disconnecting outcomes from basically business and, and and customer, right? Whereas if you're reducing the crash rate, everyone can figure out how to take that and actually then you know apply some of their own knowledge in a, in a, the have the teams be autonomous on determining how to del- deliver on that work, deliver on that, you know, like you said, work is work and deliver on that outcome of reducing the crash rate or improving the star rating. That's another great one, right? You might actually need to, people will give you very bad ratings if you've got a supply chain problem. That means their thing came two weeks late, right? Or maybe not two weeks, maybe the, well, an exaggeration at this point, but uh, well, with the Suez Canal, it hasn't been actually. So we, we see that flow problems can cause two-week delays very easily. But the I think so aligning around, and I think that's a really good point. The the thing I want to touch on and get, get your thoughts on is these cross-community, uh, you know, cross-value stream, cross-tribe, however, you know, however organizations are structured, cross-program OKRs, I, I've been finding to be super interesting, right? I think that within your communities and doing those those business reviews on a monthly and a quarterly basis can really help everyone prioritize if they all know that they're after better NPS, a better better active usage, better you know better retention or something of that sort. The thing I've noticed that's been really interesting in the in the cross community ones, the the cross program ones, is still having OKRs that actually help promote uh, learning and improvement, which is obviously something that that you and I are, are very passionate about. And so, for example, the one I know is working f- for us, we, you know, we used to have, a, ages ago, a flow time reduction, right? So just basically from work en- entered to, to exiting the value stream, improving that across all of our value streams because it gets people thinking the right ways around self-service and cl- in cloud platforms and, you know, the role of SREs and the split between, you know, the operational responsibilities within a particular product value stream versus in the platform value streams and the like. So one thing I've I've actually noticed is that having a a cross-community, cross-program flow efficiency metric, let's say, where everyone is looking at for their particular set of teams, how improve their flow efficiency. But of course, you know, the challenge that we all have is those dependencies or is dependencies on underinvestment common things like supply chain or pipelines or or analytics or customer, customer views and data management and the like. So uh, how are you thinking about help? Do you see, I guess... OKRs as an opportunity to inject the kind of learning that you've been driving in across these companies and the amazing things that that you've delivered to them of systematizing some of that because I, I I I could see them as a useful tool for that. So I agree, and it creates the opportunity to really build that internal capability around learning, because what I've seen happen is. People will get excited about value streams, flow. No one will dispute we want to optimize the flow of value to our customer. But what will end up happening often is behaviors and actions 
are not always creating that environment and not bad intent. It's just, it's a new learning and behavior change for a lot of leaders, especially. And so having something that creates, I would say, just like a platform to focus on learning, I think it creates that, you know, again, I'll say like that accountability across the board where it's like, how are we improving flow? And then, you know, I think we, we, we're always careful with the word accountability, but I'll, I'll give you an example of where it ex- did exactly this, where, you know, a set of teams was just too busy, which it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, there's, there's always a set of teams that's going, that's going to be too busy, but because there's accountability, about it, in this case, an organization around flow efficiency, everyone's responsible every single quarter to create a set of experiments or monthly, ideally, for increasing their flow and reducing their burden. And this team didn't. And so, you know, they were, and of course they want to, but actually introducing accountability for learning, it's, it's just this, I think it's this interesting reframe that I think, again, where we can use OKRs to, to kind of help our teams help themselves. So. Agree. And I think it, if done in a generative, you know, psychologically safe way, yeah. it's a version of, so the team that didn't, they're essentially asking for help. Yes. So it should be an indication for leaders to say, what help do you need? Like, how might we problem solve with that team to then help them optimize next, you know, and versus where I've seen it break down is the almost like the the competitive nature of it, where it's like competition can be good, but it can also not be good where people are feeling almost ashamed that they're not getting the same results as another team. And this is where I also think leaders have to accept that it's team specific. Yeah. You really have to understand the team dynamic in order for it to be a meaningful learning opportunity. And so how leaders engage is so important to create that environment so that teams can continuously learn and improve. I could not agree more. Courtney, thank you so much. That was so awesome. Is there any anything we've missed? Any last words? I've got about 20 more questions for you that we'll have to say. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I just think I'm so happy that, you know, as an industry, like we're on this journey and we're trying to help organizations be better. I think it's um, it just makes me feel always supported. It's like, we're all kind of in this together. We're learning from each other. I just think there's so much opportunity for us just to continue to drive for the right outcomes that end up being better for people. Because at the end of the day, it's about people, right? And so I just thank you for inviting me. And it's always great to catch up with you. Okay. Thank you. And thank you so much for all those contributions to our collective learnings. And yeah, I encourage you just to keep rewatching Courtney's videos <laughs> from the conferences. As I always pick something new up, but thanks so much, Courtney. Thank you. A huge thank you to Courtney for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags Mick plus one or project to product. You can reach out to Courtney on Twitter at chocklady or via LinkedIn. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember, all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, and until next time.